think Mike Duffy called them the boys in short pants. And I they're both boys and girls because I've seen them. Women and men. Hello, this is episode 47 of the Boys in Short Pants, the 48th episode. I'm Laurent Carboneau. Jeez, we're almost at 50. We are almost at 50. It's actually kind of incredible, to be honest. I, I don't think I've been committed to anything so long in my life. What about, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Etienne's fiance is wildly gesticulating <laughs> off in the corner there. I mean, project-wise. Is marriage not a project, Etienne? Relationships? Are mm, they not projects? They're not a project. They're not like woodworking projects, I guess. <laughs> yes. Sort of a different kind of thing. Yeah, fair enough. Um, yeah, so, sorry, it's been been a little bit. We, we've all been kind of busy here, and it's sort of just taken us longer than we would like to get back to the old recording table. I blame you. It's That's, like, pretty fair. Um, I, I do kind of bear the brunt of the blame for this. Uh, but we are back. So we want to start off this week talking about the government's new election bill, C-76. I, I was promised we'd talk about Fortnite. That's the only reason I'm here. <laughs> the new updated thing. <laughs> yes. Are, are the zero gravity zones as all they're cracked up to be? They are. They're super fun. Oh, that's good to know. The crossbow um, was removed, though, which I think is just a <laughs> crying shame. And they're not zones. They're, they're like little rocks that you okay, consume. Um, so, yes. See, what is it again? 76. C-76, the latest piece of, uh, of uh, legislation introduced by the government, introduced by Scott Bryson earlier this week. In his role as acting Democratic Institutions Minister. For... Uh, Karina Gold, who, who has a small child. Who has babyitis. She's, she's down with the baby for now. Yes. Um, also, can I, like, I, I, this is old news at this point, but I do love how they renamed the, um, the portfolio from Democratic Reform to Democratic Institutions after they decided they weren't going to do electoral <laughs> reform. Well, no, to be fair, it was renamed that from the start. No, she had a Democratic Reform in her title. Uh, she did. Was you, you're like remembering this now. Maybe. Yeah. People can yell at me if I'm wrong, but I'm certain I'm right. So okay. anyway, carrying on. Uh, okay, yeah. So Scott Bryson drops the legislation. 350-some-odd page bill. Um, notably, it sort of subsumes some of the previous legislation that they tabled. Yes. Which, you know, is strongly indicative. Or, yes. Indicative. Indicative. Yeah. Um, of their desire to... Although some, like, we can bicker as to whether or not this constitutes omnibus legislation because it doesn't, you know, bring in things from... No, it's all pretty germane. It is pretty germane, but it's yeah. sort of interesting to see that this is one of many pieces of legislation that they're introducing now to replace legislation yeah. that's been sitting on the order paper and hasn't gone anywhere for a while. So they've introduced legislative bills, they've never got them passed, and then they said... Okay, and now we want to update it and we want to do more things. Yeah. So, like the environmental assessment one. Environmental uh, assessment, I believe, did a little bit. Yeah. Um, most interestingly, some of the justice reform bills. Yeah. Oh, um, there's also this question of the um, speaking of omnibus kind of votes, is that there's a vote on um, one of the budget implementation votes is like a absurd amount of money. Like you, you're talking about the $7 something? billion dollar slush yeah, fund yeah. vote? I've, I've looked into this marginally and I'm still not really sure. Okay, we can we can talk about it another time because it is actually pretty interesting. Yes, yeah. I'm still not 100% sure I grasp what exactly okay. is going on and what point the government is trying to make because it's just... It's unusual. It's, it's a situation where you have the government saying, we're being more transparent and everyone else is saying, you're being less transparent yeah. than, like, I don't well, know. Well, because the idea, I mean, just just in, in, in as much of a nutshell as possible, the idea is that Parliament votes to authorize spending, 
And really? Yeah. Yeah. No. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but typically, if you're voting on chunks of money that big with such a broad application, it sort of undermines the idea of parliamentary scrutiny of how money is spent, which is sort of the core role. Of so government. why does Bryson say that this, I, I mean, you might not know the answer to this. I don't know the answer to this. <laughs> well, I'm going to ask the question rhetorically anyway. Yeah. Why does Bryson say that this is more transparent than normal and it has to do with updating the supplementary estimates process? Yeah. Well, yeah. Uh, we can come back and talk about this. It's, it's interesting and I think it deserves more time than we're going to give it here in passing. For, yes. Okay. So coming back to the elections bill. <laughs> We are terrible at this. Um, why did we do a podcast? Um, so, yes, we're, we're coming back to the Elections Act, uh, which I think is fair to say is largely intended to roll back a lot of the changes introduced by the Conservatives' Fair Elections Act. Uh, it explicitly rolls back several of them. A couple. Yeah. A couple. I, like, the I appreciate that. Yeah. Actually, the French uh, the French hashtag the NDP thought up at the time was much better. Which was? Deforme électoral. Electoral deformity. Well, yeah, it doesn't translate, but it works in French. Okay. God damn it, yeah, you're such a bad French guy. <laughs> uh, so, what do you have to say about this bill? I think I, I think it moves in the right direction on a lot of its finer points. Uh, certainly, restoring the voter identification card as a means of, of ID to me is, is harmless and fine. Yes, um, because I find myself so often needing my mail as a form of identification. Well, actually, it's funny you say that. When I was a student in New Brunswick and I had just moved to Canada. Uh, well, back to Canada, I should say. Uh, I had no driver's license. I had no utility bills. So I did actually rely on my... You, you, can, I, go, you can go to the bank and they'll print you off a little bank statement with your new address. I probably could have done that. But at the same time, it's nice to have something that for people who are busy, and most people don't really tune into elections before the last two weeks, I don't see a harm in like giving those people an option to go vote that gets mailed to their house and can just bring with them to the polling station that has all the requisite information. I think that's totally fine. I have absolutely no issue with that. I mean, of of the things they've rolled back on it, I guess ID via mail slip is the one I take perhaps the least issue with. Um, but let's let's skip arguing about mail for a minute. <laughs> um, and just say, okay, so the bill is 350 pages, pages long. It does a lot of things. Uh, for instance, it changes... One of the criticisms from the past election, 2015 election, was that there was advantages for the Conservative Party to make the writ longer because it increased spending. Yeah. Um, so it rolls back some of those things, sort of de-indexing the writ length from the amount of spending you're allowed to have. Um, uh, which is which is interesting. Well, and that'll bring you... T- and we'll talk about the other side of that in a bit, I guess. Well, let, let's go right to okay, that. So. What, I, what I think is most interesting and the part that we're really just going to skim because this bill is huge and we haven't gone through it at length and we don't have the, like all the appropriate numbers in front of us, is to talk about third-party spending. Because I think third-party spending is one of the yes. biggest issues that came up during the last election. Yeah, so let, let's zoom back in time to summer 2015 when a group of sort of unions that was sort of anti running an anti-conservative campaign was lead, running... Lead Now? Not Lead Now. Um, I think it was like... Engage? Engage Canada. Yeah. yeah I think that's right. Uh, lead Now didn't do as much paid stuff. They were mostly like canvassing and that kind of stuff. Uh, did a couple polls, but that's like less... They were like a strategic voting outfit, and I think a lot of people, both in the Liberals and NDP, don't really like them that much. Um but no, so so Engage Canada, which is sort of a union-funded effort against uh, the Conservatives, was running big ads uh, over the summer before the writ dropped, and I think part 
of what people were talking about in that summer as part of the reason why Stephen Harper um, had the writ go up so soon in the summer when people, for an October election was because he wanted the third party advertising limits to kick in for the writ period where they're regu- relatively unregulated outside of it. So yeah. A... So, okay. Let's talk about that decision really sure. quickly. So there was the legislated election date that was coming up. Yes. October 18th, 19th, 19th. Um, and you know, the house had risen in June and there was a lot of third-party advertising going down. The pros and cons from the government perspective is when your government, I'm, I'm going to share this open, dirty little secret, is to a certain extent you can use the levers of government to advance your cause. Yeah. Everyone ever in government has done this. Yeah, to some degree. The most rather. transparent example has been with Kathleen Wynne uh, and, you know, doing the budget or the, the, this, the budget thing, yeah. slash speech from the throne. Yes. Mo, like proroguing parliament to do yes. a speech from the th- throne think, to, to, get, fair, to get that sweet advertising. I think Jim Prentice did literally the exact same thing a couple years ago. I mean, like, it's not uncommon. It's not uncommon. I would have to look back, but yes. yes. Um, so, like, all, all of this is to say... Not to defend Kathleen Wynne, but... Uh, <laughs> all of this is to say that every, every government, yeah. be it liberal, conservative, NDP, to some extent uses the mechanism of government to advance their cause. Yeah. In the lead up to the election. Yeah, and you start, you, you don't, like, you know, it's not the old days where, you know, you do this in a very, very, like, obvious and kind of inappropriate way. Now it's, you know, you, you know, who is it for me to tell the government when, when they can and cannot table a budget? But, like, certainly they're going to time it for maximum advantage. And, like, I can't really fault them for that. So when you trigger the, when you drop the writ... Um, as the expression goes. Yeah, which I hate because it's corruption of draw up the writ. Don't, I'm don't, just don't even start with this. Yeah. Well, it's fine. Like, people say drop the writ, whatever. I'll say drop the writ. I've said it in this conversation already two or three times, but it is a corruption of draw up the writ. Yes, because it's not a basketball. Do you drop? Exactly. Like, you just, like, take a piece of paper and you drop it? No. You, you draw it up. You Off sign to the it. races. Exactly. And then, and then a sprint commences. <laughs> um, so, when you drop the writ, um... The ability of government to advance their own cause by being in government ceases largely because of the caretaker convention. The caretaker convention is triggered. And what that does is it basically puts a kibosh on the ability of ministers of the crown and the government generally to... Do stuff. Directly (laughs) affect the apparatus of government. Like you're not going to like be a caretaker minister of finance and say we're gonna cut all your taxes by uh whatever right like it's just uh so you you stop making announcements um you stop well i I mean your department basically goes into like full civil service mode yeah you delegate a lot of authorities to the civil service um so that the civil service is basically running itself there are some provisions in exceptional circumstances. Uh, one of the noted ones during the 2015 election was the, I believe, the ongoing negotiations of CETA. Um, CETA or TPP? I think it would have been TPP at the time. No, I think it was CETA. Because um, I, remember, I remember Cheese Quote as being a big thing during it. I think it was CETA. Yeah, you know, you may be right. I think um, TPP was a little later. 
So I think of CETA, which yeah. is the Comprehensive European Trade Agreement. Um, it's actually comprehensive economic. Oh shit! Yeah. Comprehensive ex- economic and trade. It's just basically supposed, like, comprehensive it, economic trade agreement. Yeah, because it's supposed like to be. If you really think Canada Europe trade agreement? Yes, that's it's not, not that. It it's yeah. not that. Which is a bummer. Really, um, so, so PCO during the last election made, made the unprecedented. Um, took the unprecedented step of publishing the caretaker convention. A lot of people noted that trade agreements were specifically carved out. Basically um, a don't yell at us kind of thing. To allow the government to continue to negotiate this trade agreement. All, all of that is to say that during the election, there are the government to a certain extent loses uh, the reins of government. Although, to for for the pedants out there, yes. to note that ministers are still ministers. I was about to say Ministers that. are not dissolved. Ministers stay ministers until a new minister is sworn into that portfolio. Yes. MPs, like they, I guess they are at that point no longer the MP for whatever, but they are so still part, ministers yes. around. So this was interesting because we were trying to do an event on the Hill. Um, it was the day for... I think peace officers is the way the event is framed, basically for policemen. Uh, there's a memorial on, on the Hill every year during uh, in September. But because there were no MPs, the ability to book space and to talk to Parliament was severely hindered. That would, that would do it. Um, <laughs> so it's like if you're trying to book a reception space on the Hill... Don't do it during an election. During the election, it becomes substantially more complicated um, because there are no MPs to use their authority to book. Um, space on the hill. You have to mostly go through the speaker's office. Um, yeah, and there's no speaker during an election, I guess. I don't know. I don't, I don't know. Think so. There wouldn't be. The speaker is, you know, the voice of the House of Commons, and if the House of Commons is dissolved, but, so who be... who's in charge of the House of Commons during a? Well, no one. Like, but like, as dissolved. as an institution, who who is in charge of like signing the checks? I suppose it'd be the the Crown. I don't know. I, yeah, I don't know. I suspect that Whatever. the speaker well, still This has is an role, interesting but... question for, for <laughs> people who decide how many angels dance on the heads of pins. Is this... um, oh, oh, I, I just wanted to recount a brief anecdote. Yes, peace officers on the hill. No, no, no not even done, that. done okay. that one. Oh, just in terms of how significant the caretaker convention is. When we were in government, every Monday we went for a communications planning meeting. Sounds fun. Um, yes, where you plan the... Agenda of the next month, you look at what press releases are scheduled to come out, um, you talk about speeches to be delivered, th- things along those lines. Um, and of that, like there was social media and a- other things discussed. Um, when we went the Monday after the writ was dropped, the, the caretaker convention, we went down and they basically expressed that we were no longer invited to these meetings. (laughs) (laughs) Like, we were often mostly, like, in that one in particular, we were aware of our role and to be just basically passive observers because the minister is still the minister, but the opinion was expressed that we shouldn't even be in the room anymore. Wow. And so we we abided by that. So civil service takes that pretty seriously then? Very seriously. Good for them, I guess. Yeah. I mean, I, I imagine they probably like it when the politicians aren't in the room to tell them what to do. <laughs> I would, that would seem like, you know, be an improvement from their point of view. Okay, so wait, let's get back on track here. Um, back on track, talking about C-78. Six. Damn it. You really have trouble with this one, eh? I'm bad with numbers. Yeah. Uh, and, and names. And like... <laughs> dates. Uh, C-76. So yeah, third-party advertising. Yes. Um, one of the things the bill does is it clamps 
down maybe somewhat on third-party advertising. Yeah, the caps are pretty high still. So increase the caps. Yeah. Um, but it does include some new provisions to prevent third-party advertising during writ and pre-writ period. Yeah, the pre-writ period is kind of what was more at issue because that was, I think, very, very, very lightly regulated. And people were concerned about the sort of like inter-year spending of like, you know, you know, the Koch brothers or George Soros or, you know, the lizard people uh, trying to influence our elections by or Putin or whatever, who's also the lizard people. The lizard king is uh, a very wealthy man. <laughs> the lizard king, indeed. Um, people were concerned that they would spend money uh, and not have to count it as an election expense, and that this was going to be very, very bad for democracy. I think there's certainly something to that. I think if you look at the sort of proliferation of political money in the states and see kind of how what that's done, I think nothing good is probably the correct answer. On the other hand, you do have to recognize that there is a legitimate like freedom of speech issue here where people are allowed to express themselves politically. And if you're an organization that does political advocacy or even advocacy related to political issues that isn't necessarily partisan or political, uh, you might your ordinary work might run up against these limits or like be counted as expenses. Um, so Etienne, you have one example that you're particularly fond of from a organization many people might think is unsympathetic, but I think certainly makes its case well here. In- incredibly sympathetic, I'd say. Um... Unsympathetic. No, but I... I oh, you find I, them sympathetic. I, I, I find them sympathetic. Um, so this actually, I'm, I'm referring, I'm going to be referring to a McLean's article entitled Ontario Muzzles Taxpayers Watchdog in Election Spending Clapdown uh, by Aaron Hutchins in November of 2017. I love it that, yeah, okay. Um, sure. And so what... <laughs> Carry on. <laughs> what the piece is about is about how the CTF, the Canadian Taxpayers Federation, a group that advocates on behalf of taxpayers... That's, that's a cute way to put it. Uh, <laughs> um, and run sort of public awareness campaigns on various issues, uh, be it carbon tax or debt, um, yes. thing, things along these lines. All, only with the finest empirical rigor, like they did with their carbon tax, uh, carbon tax math, as I recall. In, in somewhat disclosure, I, I interned for them once upon a time. You did. Um, I actually th- really thought I would hate Etienne when I first met him. So I was like, he's a conservative from Fort McMurray who works for the CTF. Like, what the fuck is this guy? And then it turns out, actually, we ended up being friends, but it was a uh, touch and go there for a bit. <laughs> so, okay, just just to summarize the article. So this is actually in relation to the Ontario legislation. And so it points out sort of where the CTF bumps up against the Ontario legislation in terms of them advocating for a position on carbon tax at that point all three of the parties disagreed with so they're in opposition to all the main parties and in fact all the parties um and they were having issues spending money on their general website because it included um an ontario section that talked about ontario politics basically uh, to, to sum, sum up and oversimplify this and so w- what happens is you you have the election commissioner saying well, you're an advocacy group. You are advocating on an issue that is salient in the political sphere right now. Um, that's a problem. You shouldn't be doing this pre or post election. Or if you spend over five hundred dollars, you're going to. No, sorry, not that you shouldn't be doing it, but that if you do it, there's yeah. certain strings attached. Um, and if you spend over five hundred dollars, then you're going to have to disclose your donors. And so around Ottawa, I know that friends of ours have sort of been looking into this legislation because they work for various advocacy groups yeah who like take your pick if you're 
the beer brewers of Canada or the camel raisers. Okay, the camel raisers, sure. And you want to have a public position on an issue during an election of salience in that particular election, you then draw scrutiny from... We need more camels. (laughs) Additional camels are required. Camel subsidies. Um, You then draw scrutiny from Elections Canada. Yeah. Um, as to what you can say, what you can't say, how much you can spend, what you can spend it on, what you then have to disclose. So it can become very burdensome very quickly well, if done in an inappropriate yeah, manner. Yeah, and I think it's really important to note that, once again, contrary to the U.S., we don't have a lot of very big advocacy organizations. Even if it's an organization that you, you would think is pretty big, they're sort of people who, are, who know the law and are able to do the compliance with it is usually you can count on one hand. Usually, for for the vast majority of organizations I can think of, even ones that you'd think would be pretty well bankrolled and financed, it's not a very big world. So this would actually, I think, put quite a chill on political advocacy in Canada. And the degree to which you think that is important certainly is debatable. And, you know, what that will mean is is certainly up for, you know, empirical observation. But I think there are reasons to be cautious about going this far in this direction. Uh, I think the liberals basically realize that they don't have a complete answer to this. So that's why they've left the cap so high. It's about 500000 I believe. Yeah, that's the point John yeah. Ivison makes in his piece. I yeah. think it's actually 500000 or a million. Five, I think it's 500000 Okay. At any rate, it's quite high. Um, and it's been raised, I think, specifically because of this ambiguity. Uh, because it's going to create a lot of uncertainty for advocacy organizations. And um, I think... You know, this is awkward for a lot of charities as well, because charities are allowed to do a certain amount of political advocacy. Not much. It has to be, once again, I think 20%, similar to the lobbying rules. Um, So, and, you know, I I made the point when we were talking a little earlier that the problem with that is that we draw such a bright line between advocacy and charity. When, you know, if you're a charity that works with the homeless, you know, the empirical sort of observation you can make is that housing first programs work and that perhaps the best use of your dollar as a charity that you know raises money to fight homelessness is to advocate for policies that end it uh but it's very tricky to do in canada because of our sort of rules around charities and around advocacy and this sort of complicates that further uh so i don't know i think we'll see how it works out i think it's probably wise that they've they've opted to have a fairly high bar on uh the the limit right now um, but I think this is something that should probably be revisited in the next parliament. I don't think there's going to be time to do it before the next election at this point. And frankly, they're leaving it pretty late on this one. You don't you don't think this piece of legislation will pass before the next no, election? No, no, I think this does. I just think if they want to revisit it, it's probably going to have to wait till the next parliament. So let's, let's actually talk about the timeline very quickly. Sure. Um, because it's effectively not going to go anywhere until next session. Right. And then if it sits... Well, okay... The next sitting. Sorry, yes. yes. Let's be finicky. Uh, yeah. There's only been one session of this parliament so far. No so far. Actually, yes. no, I might, I may be correct. You may be correct, but we don't know yet. I, I believe I will be correct. Okay, we'll see. Um, which is to say that they will likely, in my estimation, prorogue over the summer. Um, as well as cabinet shuffle. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> they have a lot of bills on the order paper, though. This, but just in terms of timing, the fact that this is yeah. coming so late into their four years, um, that the earliest I can see this getting passed is April, I'm going to say, of next year. And then it has to go through the Senate, which is like... No, no, no. I'm, I'm, oh, I'm like, totally. The no, full... but even then, that's like, that's optimistic, I think. Yes. I think the Senate will be inclined to be pedantic about this. So, sure. 
Um, but pushing it, like getting, you know, comprehensive 350 pages of new election rules in the months prior to your next federal election. Six months. Right well, around, like within months of theoretically being able, well, you can drop the route whenever, but within months of when the last route was dropped in a comparable situation, yeah. which is 2015. E- not the looking, best yeah, look. under six months right like it's not a ton of time um, and let's add to that that there's still no elections commissioner yeah, yeah. appointments are not this government's strong suit. no i and i it just baffles me like it's really should be like the easiest thing and it would be interesting to have had an elections commissioner and to have them come testify at committee i mean maybe there will be one by the time this bill gets to committee I, but it's likely i think here we um, are um I think there's a lesson here with in, in terms of just like democratic reform slash institutions, I guess, uh, initiatives is that you should probably just do them at the top of your mandate. It just seems like you want to give yourself as much time for these things to go smoothly as possible. Unless, of course, you know, it's electoral reform and you deliberately want to tank the process, in which case I, I can see why you wait a while uh, and then say, oh, but there's not enough time to change. Um, so I, I get that. That's, you know, it's cynical, but fair. Um so, yeah, I think waiting until the third year of your mandate to do this is perhaps not the best time when you can sort of do the election law off the top. I can I can taste the bitterness in the air. <laughs> I, th- I mean, like, whatever. Like, I, I'm not that hardcore about electoral reform. I think it's important. I think it's nice to have. But, like, I, it's not my hill to die on. I just think they, they really lied to voters on that one and just seem to have absolutely no remorse about it whatsoever. So, you know, it is what it is. But there you go. Okay, next topic. What do we got? Uh, your favorite thing, dude. Woo! It's uh, Etienne's cannabis update. So, the reason I belabor this so much is I think it is not what? only interesting policy, but interesting in terms of process um, and reasonably unique in terms of process. Well, I mean, it's the first time like a major Western country has, well, any country really. I think Uruguay has legalized, I guess, but Uruguay probably has less to worry about in terms of having a land border with the United States and all this stuff. So this is the most like technically complex implementation of marijuana legalization I think we've seen. The Washington, Colorado ones were interesting for other reasons because they're operating in a sort of gray area where federally it is still a crime. Uh, but this is a wholesale like market creation in a totally legalized sort of environment, and I think I think it is like fascinating to watch the details as they emerge. So I say this in defense of Etienne's uh, endless fascination with cannabis law. Um, so let's let's catch up with where cannabis is today. Um, we're recording on May third. On May first, uh, it was the deadline for the four secondary committees. Uh, being APA, SECTI, LCJC, and AFA. Uh, <laughs> I guess I actually have to explain what those are. Mm-hmm. Uh, Aboriginal Peoples, National Security and Defense, Legal and Constitutional Affairs, and then AFA is International Trade and something or other. Um, they all were expected to report um, their findings to Sochi, which is the Social Affairs Committee, which is the committee in charge of making the actual recommendation or the actual amendments slash recommendations that are going uh, going to be presented to the Senate. Um, so three of those committees reported on May 1st, the fourth one being um, Foreign Affairs and International Trade or whatever the hell it stands for, um, went to, got an extension because they needed to hear from Minister Freeland before they made their recommendations. And Minister Freeland, understandably, was fairly caught up with NAFTA and other pressing issues. Indeed. Uh, so she wasn't actually able to appear before the committee until I think it was May 1st. 
Um, so they got an extension until May 9th or so, I'm told. Um, so let's talk about um, the first three reports. Uh, beginning with the first one that was published and the one that perhaps got the most notoriety, um, although it is the second least interesting one, um, is, the Abra- is the Aboriginal People's, the APA report. Uh, the APA report made two legislative recommendations and about eight policy recommendations. The difference between those is policy recommendations are just broadly things they suggest the government should do. Mm-hmm. Uh, the government should spend, you know, more money on X program. The government should run this type of commercial and anything along those lines. Yeah, it's like stuff that the government can sort of hammer out for itself that isn't necessarily legislative. Yes, the legislative amendments are the, here is the way I want you to amend the bill. And so the two from APA were, one, a one-year extension, uh, not on passing legislation itself, but on the coming into force of the legislation in order to better consult with Indigenous people, which I thought was really interesting and sort of bizarre. Um, and the second one was a quota of 20% of cultivator production license. I can't remember how they frame it. Um, cultivator, I think. To be uh, given to Indigenous-owned or Indigenous-run businesses. Yeah, on Indigenous territory. On Indigenous territory. Okay. Again, these are both horrible, horrible recommendations. I just... just to, quickly summarize i'm incredibly sympathetic um to the case of indigenous people regarding the lack of consultation uh that the government had with them which effectively zero there there are no provisions in this bill and very few if any provisions kind of surprising to be honest how little they did in most provincial legislation regarding indigenous peoples yeah. to the point where a lot of questions about on reserve versus off reserve enforcement cultivation all of these things there are a lot of big question marks looming over that um, but in terms of the actual recommendations themselves, they're pretty weak. Um, I mean, they, they they make very big recommendations without sort of a lot of detail as to rationale or really like implementation suggestions or... So, so let, let's, let's pick apart the first one. Sure. The first one being um, delay coming into force. Okay, so that you can consult with people and then maybe make some regulatory changes, although that's not even explicitly outlined uh okay so i've got the text in front of me here it says delay coming to the force of c50 uh, c45 for one year to allow time for first nations and you at and the government to negotiate and agree on the following deliverables implementation of an appropriate excise tax uh culturally specific and linguistically appropriate education materials recognition and affirmation of the principles of communities of the right to enact legislative regulatory um, do the proposed legislation process. yes yeah, substantial funding increases on an urgent basis given the intergenerational trauma present in indigenous communities for mental health like ugh. a lot of these things number one I, should, I think these are all good ideas I just think that this unfortunately comes far too late in the legislative process for it to have a substantial impact at this point which I think speaks to a weakness in the senate reform in the sense that we want to have this consultative body that is going to propose substantive amendments but at the same time they've given themselves a firm legislative timeline on this that they like can't afford to shunt back a whole year so they've kind of caught themselves in a bind by appointing these you know um expert senators who then propose something on an issue that is supposedly you know concerning the most important relationship canada has to its to the indigenous people who live here um and then they're kind of going to be like yeah well this is actually asking us to do a lot so mm, don't know about that and i i understand that they've gotten themselves into a bind i mean i certainly 
think that it would be unfortunate if they delayed a year, given all the promises they've made to that effect. But this is kind of their policy on the Senate uh, coming back to bite them in the ass a little bit. So just to lay it out point blank, all of these things had the government wanted to do them should have been done before the legislation was ever tabled. Well, the commons should have effectively like, dealt with this and this should have been in the first draft. And so the fact that they haven't been dealt with isn't uh, to discredit APA, which is the committee. No, like, this is like, I think it, a lot it of just, the stuff here... It speaks to the government's... Yeah work on this bill yeah and some of the some of the areas they miss because i think some of the work is very good um but there are very clearly oversights or willful oversights yeah and this is one they really shouldn't have made i think because because they've been frankly they've made good progress on other aspects like other aspects of the relationship with indigenous people i think like the service delivery has improved to some degree and in some places quite a bit uh certainly jane philpott's doing a good job as as indigenous services minister uh but yeah, like, this is, like, stuff they should have covered off the top. Okay, so let's move on to recommendation number two. Prescribe that the Minister of Health reserve at least 20% of all cannabis production licenses for producers on lands under the jurisdictions or ownership of indigenous governments. Of indigenous governments. I, sorry, I was trying to parse how the or worked into that. Uh, for producers on the lands or under the jurisdiction or, or ownership. ownership. Jurisdiction or ownership yeah. of indigenous governments. Um, this is a looks good but would be horrible in practice recommendation. Yeah. Um, it would serve the effect of dramatically bottlenecking um, the industry. Um, they're already well behind. They would have to suddenly create i think we're at almost i think we're at over 100 uh licensed producers um in various stages uh so 20 plus businesses would have to pop up overnight depending on how they uh, implemented timelines for this you will die yeah um yeah. and then that is a that is a key question there and then you just have the question of how these businesses would operate in practice the cannabis industry with over 100 plus competitors is going to be highly highly competitive and people are talking about the margins of the industry and, you know, the, the price that you can produce a gram of cannabis for um, with pe- and, and with people talking about, you know, lower uh, wages, lower hydro bills and lower water bills being huge factors into the success and profitability of these businesses, making it so that these had to operate on indigenous grounds. Use just that point or on, di- on indigenous land. Um puts into question the ability to compete yeah. freely like that that alone if you were to make this recommendation 100 percent better you would scratch that line point blank the on, on lands, lands yeah. alone completely sabotages the intent of the amendment because let, let's use the example of canopy canopy uh the largest licensed producer in canada with a market valuation of billions of dollars or at least over a billion um operated or opened up uh, primarily in a large Hershey's chocolate factory. And the reason they picked a Hershey's chocolate factory is because... Cheap square footage in a warehouse? Exactly. There you go. And so are reserves necessarily the best place to do this? Probably not. If you're you're building new... (laughs) It depends where, but like, you know, if you're talking... Even even in reserves that are urban or, you know, basically urban, if you're talking about the uh, Kanawagis or the Six Nations um of the world you're still talking about places that don't have a lot of warehouses um and that would certainly be like a lot more startup cost so i mean like i totally understand where they're coming from here right the the idea with this amendment is basically that 
people who have historically been over-policed on uh, the sort of like idiotic drug war policies uh, should see a return uh, from legalization and that all the profit from a new legal industry shouldn't go to the people, you know, who have basically skated by. Um, and that's totally understandable. I get that. I think we should be talking about that in terms of, of like ethnic communities in major cities as well, uh, not just indigenous people. Uh, and I think that's a conversation that is one the liberals should have had on this and I don't think is really happening, unfortunately. Uh, but tying it to land specifically, I think is, especially when you're talking about land that has very little history of urban, or urbanization and industrialization in terms of having the equipment, you're setting yourself up to fail which I think is kind of the cruelest thing we could do really is like set up indigenous people to fail again uh, on one more thing on top of the many, many other things we've set up indigenous people to fail on. So yeah, I, I've come, I've come to your point of view that this is perhaps not, it's well-intentioned though, perhaps not the best idea. I, I will add one caveat to my earlier uh, comment uh, ju- just to note, because if anyone is a rabbit follower of the cannabis industry, then not all uh, cannabis facilities, cultivation facilities are in old warehouse spaces. For instance, Aurora Sky being the facility being built outside the Ontario airport, large greenhouse facilities. When but, you say the Ontario airport, or, Toronto Pearson. No. I meant Edmonton Airport. Wow, you weren't even close. Uh, Edmonton Airport, my, my various homes. Um, Edmonton Airport, um, large brand new facility, super modern, all, all of those things. Uh, but suffice it to say... But it's like if you wanted to do... like It is a cheap way to get started, right? Like yes. Yeah. These, these facilities and the ones that are successful are going to be the ones that produce in lowest cost jurisdiction yeah. based on a variety of factors and by artificially restricting... Where they can produce and where they can locate, yeah, you're you're absolutely hooped. Yeah. Not not to mention the natural bottlenecking that occurs with something like a twenty percent threshold, yeah, um, because you know uh, the amount of investment, uh, the number of like indigenous people don't represent twenty percent of Canadians, if I'm not mistaken, about five, depending on how you define indigenous. And if you put in the economic means and some of the background there, it's I mean, it's certainly much easier to build, you know, a cannabis growing facility in Six Nations or Kahnawake than it is in James Bay, for instance. I think you'd have a real hard time doing that. For sure. Yeah. Anyways, so let's uh, let's fast forward. So Apple Report came out. Uh, I, I, I should note this. Trudeau had initially sort of avoided commenting, which led to terrible headlines by people looking to sell newspapers, I suppose. <laughs> that is their job. That Trudeau opens door to legalize or to delaying legalization. No such thing. The absence of comment on something is not opening the door to it. But um, it's not closing the door uh, to it. <laughs> <laughs> well, actually, he, he then went forward and firmly closed the door yes, today. That, that does seem wise on his part. Um, so let's talk about the other reports really quickly. So there was the SECTI report, uh, National Security and Defense, which had zero legislative recommendations, which sort of fits with the area of the bill that they were covering. They were covering border issues, and it's hard to legislate around border issues. Indeed it is. Um, and they had six policy recommendations. We're not really going to touch on those. And then there was LCJC, which is Legal Constitutional Affairs. Their report was a little more interesting because they had both uh, unanimous minority and majority recommendations included in their legislative uh, recommendations. Hmm. 
Um, so they had seven unanimous, one majority recommendation, and six minority recommendations. Uh, I'll highlight their one majority recommendation, which was to prohibit home grow. Uh, and, the, and then they had, by my count, five some odd policy recommendations. Um, LCJC probably had the lion's share of the legislation and some of the most interesting bits. Um, their recommendation, their legislative recommendations were actually a little less interesting than I anticipated. Um, I thought they'd be a little more creative. They weren't. Um, so all of this is now going to flow to social affairs committee and social affairs is, and in fact, LCJC and others, uh, were testifying this week before social affairs, uh, to present their recommendations so that social affairs could then sort of amalgamate all the reports and take which legislation or, or sorry, which, uh, amendments it fancied and put them all together, vote on them and then take them back to the Senate, uh, for report stage. And then third reading debate of the bill before it goes presumptively to the house of commons. I think there've been some senators on record saying that there's no way this bill gets through the Senate without recommend or without uh, amendment. It seems unlikely at this point, yeah. Highly unlikely. Yeah. Um, I'll, I'll put myself on record to say the number one recommendation I'm looking for, is, and I know it's going to happen, is going to be um, not the prohibition of home grow, because I think a lot of ISG senators will be opposed to that. I think it will clarify the language in the bill to make it between zero and four plans. Because right now, the legislation says something along the lines of fewer than four, and the federal government has gone into sort of uh, a fight with provincial governments, namely Quebec and I think Manitoba, about whether or not fewer than four constitutes one to four or zero to four, and whether or not provinces would be on the right side of sort of federal law to prohibit home grow. Mm -hmm. And so I think the Senate really wants to clarify that and really wants to give the power to provincial governments to ban homegrown entirely if they see fit very well um a couple things happened this week as well um okay yeah let, let's just do a quick roundup because well first first and foremost uh the one thing we covered briefly and then never really followed up on was daniel jean testifying at secu um, he spoke too fast. <laughs> it was hard to understand. <laughs> to cover that very, very quickly, because we're like two weeks late on this news, because we're not... Various reasons. We're, we're not good at breaking news. No one's fault in particular. <laughs> <laughs> um, Daniel Jean, who's the NSIA, the National Security Intelligence Advisor. Is he still, or is he like... Uh, he, he's still until he retires in a uh, month or two. Um, He's going to go fishing and just never come back. (laughs) (laughs) Testified before committee trying to tell the government side of the story on the Outwall affair. And to sum up his incredibly rapidly spoken testimony, uh, what it effectively amounted to was him saying that the government became aware of some sort of actor who was reaching out to media outlets and telling lies. And the lies that the, the actor was telling was that the RCMP, the UK High Commission, and or CSIS... Um, the UK High Commission? Or, or, God, yeah, I was going to say. Damn it. Why would they be involved here? The Canadian High Commission in Delhi or wherever it was. Um, it was, in fact, Delhi, yes. Delhi. Um, was aware, was tipped off for weeks previous about the participation of Atwal, and they did not act on it. And I think there may or may not have been something in relation to the standing of Atwal in terms of the uh, 
the delegation. And so uh, Jean spoke about convening a, you know, a midnight phone call with RCMP, which actually isn't, you know, in my in my experience, like it's not that big of a deal. Like there are people, a midnight call. There are people there to midnight, pick up the phone. Midnight call was a great Steven Seagal movie. <laughs> <laughs> there are people who are paid to be on 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 call for these sort of things and who wake up at five a.m. to address this sort of situation when it occurs. Um, so it's it's not that out of the ordinary, but it, it is certainly of significance. Um, and so he convened this midnight call and they started reaching out to media outlets uh, to try and sort of swap back this narrative and that they sort of reviewed their records. And the first they were tipped off about this was there's some date, I think it's like February 21st. Um, don't, don't quote me on that. I'm, I'm really just free balling on this. Uh, January 20, uh, anyways. Um, and so, which was a day before or, or something along these lines. And they, uh, they quickly acted to rectify the situation. And Atwal was, of course, bounced from all future ones. And so he talked about basically a very prompt response as soon as they found out. Um, which is good. It, it, I mean, it was the right call. Um, there were substantial questions raised as to whether or not he was the man for the job, whether or not he was the one who should have been briefing media on it and how he he came to that decision. He sort of argued that it was his decision. He um, was the one to initiate the idea that he would brief media, although PMO notably told him which journalist to brief. So, I mean, and there, there have been a lot of doubt as to whether or not he would get approval from the political side to do this sort of thing. And, you know, um, a lot of, a lot of questions still sort of linger there. Uh, I would rapidly note that the RCMP then tabled in an OPQ, a different date than Jean had quoted in committee, uh, by a little less than 24 hours. Uh, before the date that Jean had quoted. So Jean seems to have been undercut by the RCMP. The RCMP is definitely the coldest department. Um, I don't attribute that to Malice. I fully attribute that to uh, in, what, what word are you looking for? Um, I'm just not sure. I'm trying to parse my language right now. I, I attribute that to an honest error on the part of the RCMP who, who have been known to make this sort of error in the past. <laughs> Um, but it certainly did not look good, and there were certainly a few media articles that spawned from that. Yeah, so Daniel's not probably out of the woods at this point, and he, his, a, his well, well-earned well walk into the forest from which he will never return. So my my final criticism here is that Daniel Jean, when asked about why he had to be the one doing this, he talked about his position at the center. So the NSIA coordinates all of the... Na- all of the national security agencies of the government of Canada, be it CSIS, the RCMP, uh, Global Affairs has a branch of this, uh, CBSA has a little bit, take your pick. Um, and he thought he was the most well-placed person. I would argue that he wasn't, and that bureaucrats briefing meeting this way is actually highly unusual, and that this, in fact, very easily could have been dealt with by the political side, and was, in fact... Probably should have been. Should have been, and yes, because the highly political issue and the fact of having a minister clarify facts to media is not uncommon, not unusual. The minister or even a press secretary speaking on background and saying, no, those those facts are wrong is literally not a hard thing to do. No, it happens all the time. Like, for a press secretary to lay out dates, 
incredibly easy. Here is the day we found out the tip. Here is the date this happened. Like I'm sure they did it several times on that trip. There was there was no reason for the NSIA to give this highly unusual briefing. Although, uh, to fairly represent Shah's point, he was of the opinion that this type of briefing perhaps should not have been unusual, um, and perhaps in future shouldn't be. But here, here we are. Um, the moral of the story is in, in an attempt to rectify a, a minor developing situation because ultimately the fudging of dates and a few articles that could have been corrected later um, did not constitute the crisis that it turned into be. And certainly the situation turned into some sort of diplomatic incident that it never should have been. Next time on Arrested Development. <laughs> <laughs> so let, let me leave that there and just note um, very quickly a few pieces of news on the Hill this week. Um, so Gord Brown... Uh, as many of you may have heard, passed away. By all accounts, a fantastic man. Um, respects were paid to him on Wednesday. Yep. Uh, they shut down Parliament. Uh, Wayne Easter gave the speech on behalf of the Liberals. Uh, Elizabeth May and Andrew Shear and some others spoke very, very fondly of Gord. Brian Massey for the NDP. Uh, yeah, so, I mean, res- respects to him. Um, Aaron Weir got bumped out of the NDP caucus. He did indeed. Um, there had been an ongoing third-party investigation into Weir, um, which uh, in the press conference this morning, Jagmeet Singh um, sort of presented that the NDP was pursuing a restorative justice approach where Weir had never been accused of you know overt aggressive behavior, but it was sort of a series of perhaps awkward events, I will call them. Mm-hmm. Um, but that he had, I don't know, perhaps not responded in the best way. And so the NDP was pursuing a restorative justice approach to this. It sounded like it was a problem, but a manageable one. And they were going to say, take some sensitivity training, you know, sort of just clean up your act. Like it's, you know, we'll, we'll move past it. But then... Aaron Weir, uh, responded to media on the issue and sort of alleged that he was being set up because of his position on a pipeline. No, it was because he, he, had, he has a position on the carbon tax, carbon which is tax. that there should be a, a border adjustment. Ah, uh, okay. Which is like not for or against the carbon tax. I think he's broadly pro-carbon tax. It's yes, just that he thinks it, it should it be mitig- made more rigorous. Mitigate, yeah. So there's been, there's been actually weird coverage of this because some people seem to be thinking that this is like the left of the NDP purging it purging people who don't believe in a carbon tax when that's not the case at all fair um just i've seen that around and it's like struck me as very odd and people didn't read the article yeah shocker so (laughs) weir came out publicly with with these accusations critically what he said was that the women were instructed to make up complaints against him by former leader tom Mulcair and former caucus chair charlie angus uh, that crossed a line, I think, with caucus and with the leader, who then decided to boot him out of caucus for doing that because it was very, very inappropriate. Um, yeah, so, I mean, Weir's out. Yeah. Um, so another independent MP joining the um, the illustrious bench of Hunter Tutu and Darshan Kang. <laughs> yes. yes. Uh, the Bloc Québécois are... Continues to sort con- of... <laughs> continues to implode... The gang of seven that had ostensibly been waiting until some of the party politics had been figured out. Well, there will be a referendum in June on whether the bloc will focus more on independence or on representing Quebec. But if I'm not mistaken, the gang of seven have gone forward and said that they're going to make their own party. Well, they're kind of mulling it. 
So okay. it sort of seems contingent on what happens at this referendum. I'll we'll see. I, I don't. To be honest, it's a bit impenetrable, and I if like the blocks politics are certainly not of interest to many people right now. In no. the sense that they, it actually like it's interesting because in Quebec right now you have a situation where the NDP is kind of struggling to make up lost ground. The Liberals, I think, are won a big victory in 2015, but not with very deep roots, much like the NDP did in 2011. And the Conservatives are actually in a pretty good position in a lot of the rural parts of the province, but it'll be, remains to be seen whether they're able to capitalize on that with Andrew Shearer as leader. I don't know. It, it, it'll be interesting either way. If we have a single separatist listener, <laughs> DM us on Twitter, I want to know. Yeah, yeah. Um, the, the last thing I'd point out just in terms of uh, process quirks is what, one of the fun points in uh, question period today um, was Charlie Angus asking Bob Zimmer... Uh, who's chair of the ethics committee, Ethi, um, a, a question on AIQ, which is, of course, the ongoing uh, Facebook and the, uh, the Cambridge study- Analytica gong show. Yes, which the Ethi committee is uh, is studying. In fact, I highly recommend reading the transcripts. Some of it's very, very entertaining. <laughs> the Facebook and AIQ meetings, I think, especially. Yes. Uh, if you can catch the video of Kevin Chan, uh, Facebook's uh, sort of government relations person, uh, sort of more or less fleeing the Wellington building. There's nothing better uh, than it is someone, pretty good. <laughs> there's nothing better than the like slow motion flee while on an escalator. Oh, no, it, it was very like, very good to watch. Oof, oof, very painful. Yes. Um. Oh, so that rarely d- happens, but you can do it uh, according to standing orders. You can ask committee chairs questions as well as yes. parliamentary secretaries and ministers. That that is what I know, and because there are, I believe, two committees where the uh, chairs are are. Members of the opposition. Yes. It's uh, Effie and I actually don't know the other one, to be honest. Oh, I, I'm, I'm it trying to be justice, actually. No, no, it's not. You're wrong. Are you sure? You're 100% wrong. Government operations? Wrong. Okay, maybe it was keep, to- keep I, guessing. I, saw, I saw Tom Lukiski filling in at. Femwo? How, how do you say it? What, I don't remember. Fiwo? Fiwa. Oh, you're right, because it's Karen Vecchio. Yeah. yeah you're right, you're right, it's you're right. status of women. Yeah, yeah. Okay, no, what I was thinking, I went to a meeting in government operations where one of the vice chairs was filling in. That's why I thought that. Yeah, okay. okay. Yeah. Um, yeah, so, I mean, just, just fun to see um, third party asking opposition questions in question period, and it was it was very obviously coordinated, uh, and, you know. Kind of, kind of nice. Little, you fun. don't see it very often. It yeah. spiced up my question period watching. <laughs> Well, you know, always good when uh, when Parliament can deliver that for a tan. So that'll that'll do it for us this week. Apart from our beer review, which we'll do very quickly today, we sure. had uh, two two beers. The first was a uh, du ciel, uh, tamarindo goes, which is a, a goes, which is a sort of. You want to give the history of the goes? We did. I know, I know you. That was this. that was last episode. Oh, do we do that? Okay, so it's it's a goes uh, made with a little bit of tamarind. Very good. I, I find it's a, like honestly one of the best like summer beers I've had in a while. It's got that nice little tamarindy hint to it. Judicial salt and uh, coriander that uh, characterizes the goes, and judicial obviously makes very good stuff. This is one of the best brewers in Canada. If you can't get it in your province, burn your province down. Elect a new MLA. <laughs> uh, and then I will pitch. Yeah, I mean, I found it good. I will pitch the one I brought to the table, which is Moroccan Brown Ale by Spearhead Brewing. I'm actually not super familiar with Spearhead. Yeah, it's first um, beer fed from them. They're based out of Toronto. I know that they're carried fairly widely in the LCBO. This beer has been carried in Ontario for as long as I've been here. Uh, this particular brown ale is brewed with raisins, dates, figs, and cinnamon. Yeah, you get a little bit of the extra yeah. spice on the uh, on the end note of it. Still very good, very drinkable beer. Yeah, I mean, it's something super, super special, but it was good. Yeah. Yeah. Um, programming note for us, I guess. 
Uh, the House of Commons is sitting for another month and a half or so before the summer recess. Uh, though we will probably record our season finale close to the end of May. We don't have seasons. We do. We do. They're years. Year two. <laughs> um, but we'll be recording the, the end of year, sort of end of session, end of sitting, end of whatever, uh, episode at the end of May because Etienne is going to Morocco for several weeks. Yes. Yes, to get married. I, I suppose. Yeah, that's what he's doing. Uh, so that will uh, that will cut short a little bit from the actual end of the uh, parliamentary sitting. But uh, if you if you're wondering why that is, that is why. It's gonna be Laurent's soliloquies all through June. Uh, I'm probably not gonna do that. No, it could be fun. No. I'm I'm hoping we'll, we'll see how this pans out. I'm hoping that in the next few weeks here, we'll book a few interviews. Um, which we can then just sort of play over June. Yeah. Um, but it'll be sort of interviews on more timeless features of our Indeed. parliamentary system rather than on sort of the day-to-day goings-on of yes. the final three weeks of parliament. And summer, I think, we'll, we'll do less often, but uh, fairly in-depth kind of stuff on select issues. Yeah. Yeah. So similar kind we'll, of programming. We'll, we'll both be less busy, and therefore we can, you know, book people for interviews. Yes. And Last do... summer was unusually hectic for me because uh, I was working on the Lucio campaign so it was a bit of a mess um, but this summer should be easier So do the sort of thing full time podcasters are able to do yes indeed <laughs> uh, as opposed to casual time beer drinkers yes so that will do it for us this week thank you as always for listening you can follow us on twitter at shortpantspod uh, and that will do it Bye bye <laughs>